Remain standing for our gospel lesson, also the sermon text from John 14. I'll read verses 7 to 11. Pay attention to God's gospel. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please bless the reading and preaching and hearing of your word. And we ask that as we meditate on the words that your spirit inspired, we would be conformed into the image of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you've lived very long, you've heard the phrase, seeing is believing. I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it after I see it. And if you live in Missouri, then you have a reputation, right? Uh, We're the show me state, so you have to show me, and then I'll believe it. But the Bible turns that on its head. The Bible has a different philosophy, the opposite philosophy, which is that believing is seeing. Believing the truth is seeing. As I read the commentaries and articles on this passage Today's passage, everyone agreed that this text is profoundly Christological. Christology is the doctrine of Christ, the study of who Jesus is. And the agreed upon purpose of this passage is to explain more fully the person of Jesus Christ. He's Israel's God in human form. But as I studied these verses and turned them over in my mind, it became clear to me that something else is going on. That's only half the story, an important half. But John 14, 7 to 11 that I just read doesn't merely establish who Christ is. It's not just aimed at proving that Jesus is God in the flesh. Just as important... These handful of verses tell us who the Father is. The passage that we are considering is about the nature and the character of the Father. It's 
poterological as well as Christological. Pater is the Greek word that we get father from. So poterology is the doctrine of God the Father, the study of who God the Father is, what he's about, his character, his nature. In other words, this passage doesn't only teach us that Jesus is God, it also, and perhaps even more basically, teaches us that God the Father is revealed supremely in Jesus Christ. If you want to know who the Father is, look first to His Son. If you want to know the character of God the Father, what it's like, look to the character of God the Son. The Son reveals the Father. He explains who the Father is. Hebrews 1.3 puts it this way. He, that is the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Therefore, Jesus says in verse 7 of John 14, and I invite you to turn to John 14 in your Bibles. John 14, 7, If you had known me, you would have known also my Father. And from now on, you know Him and have seen Him insofar as they have known and seen Jesus. When you know Jesus, you know His Father. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen His Father. We know this better than Philip did, and yet we can identify with Philip's request. Right there in verse 8, can't we? Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be sufficient for us. Jesus, just give us a vision of God, and that'll be enough, and we won't ask for anything else. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one who's had similar thoughts, who's earnestly desired to experience what Philip is asking of Jesus. There, there are times when God seems so far away, so intangible, untouchable, so theoretical, that we wish more than anything that we could see Him, touch Him, hear Him. God, please stop being Invisible and silent. Show up. Make yourself known. Lord, I I want a visible image, just something of you to meet my eyeballs. I want your voice to strike my eardrums. In such moments, we believe that this sort of experience perhaps would make it easier to trust God, to live for God. Such moments, we might even be tempted to imagine that God is, is holding out on us. By denying us this kind of experience, God is making it unnecessarily difficult for us to believe Him with, with strong, unwavering faith. Maybe you've had these thoughts. Many have. And if you have, the words of the Lord Jesus to Philip in this passage should comfort you and benefit you. Now, before we look, though, at how Christ answers Philip's request, notice how and why Philip raises this question. The question arose because 
Christ was teaching his disciples about knowing God. So in a sense, Jesus actually provoked Philip's question. In verse 6, Jesus stated emphatically, No one comes to the Father except through me. Then he goes on in verse 7 to say, If you really knew me, you'd know my Father as well. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. So, so what's Jesus mean here? This statement in verse 7 is, is something of a puzzler. Occasionally, Jesus baffles his disciples somewhat intentionally as a way of expanding their minds and getting them to think outside the small box that we tend to put God in. And this is one of those times where Jesus makes mystifying statements that are designed to make his followers stop and ponder and maybe even to provoke discussion among them. So why would Jesus do this? What's the, what's the point? What's the purpose here? Well, think about the situation that they're in. Jesus knows more about their situation than they do, but think about their situation. He was about to leave them. The disciples were about to be left alone physically from the presence of Jesus. And he wanted them to know, he, he wanted them to figure out after the resurrection that in seeing him and seeing Jesus, they had seen God. In touching Jesus with their hands, they had touched God. In hearing Jesus teach and preach, God's voice had struck their eardrums. Their encounter with the person of Jesus Christ was an encounter with God. And let me remind you of the first three verses of 1 John 1. You don't have to turn there. This time, just, just listen. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 1, 1 to 3. That which was from the beginning, that is the eternal word, God the Son, that which was from the beginning, similar to the way John starts his gospel, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what John is saying here is that when he, when he encountered Jesus, he encountered God. Fellowship with the Son is fellowship with the Father. If you know Jesus, and only if you know Jesus, you know God. So when Philip made his request, Lord, give us a vision of the Father. And we promise that'll be enough. Philip was aware of those times in the Old Testament when the people of God encountered God visibly, audibly. In Exodus, you remember, Moses asked to see God's glory, remember? And God replied in Exodus 33, I will make all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. Then, the Lord placed Moses in the cleft of a rock and he covered the place, the, that space with his hand. 
and he passed by, and Moses glimpsed the backside of God's visible glory. More important, Moses heard Yahweh proclaim his name. Elijah, the prophet, had a similar experience when God caused a great wind and an earthquake and a fire to pass before the prophet, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. Rather, 1 Kings 19 says that God was in the voice that Elijah heard afterward. You may also remember back in Exodus 24, verses 9 and 10, it says, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up to the mountain and saw, they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement of sapphire, like the very heaven for clearness. Any of these experiences would have been good enough for Philip, he says. So he asked Jesus for a theophany. Lord, show us. Show us the Father. He knew he could do it. Why not? And so how did Jesus reply? Instead of granting the request in accordance with the the way Philip meant it, Jesus did what he often does to our prayers, to our requests. He does even better, unbeknownst to us. Jesus teaches the disciples what it really means to see God. He teaches them how to see God. And right off the bat, he points out the deficiency in the kind of seeing that Paul had, that Philip had in mind. Philip thought that seeing God with his eyeballs was the key. But look what Jesus says to Philip in the first part of verse 9. Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? You see what's going on there? Philip has been looking at Jesus with his eyeballs for about three years now. And yet Philip still doesn't really know Jesus. He doesn't know who he is. He hasn't seen his glory. This is evidence that seeing with your eyeballs is inadequate in itself. It's not the secret to successful faith. It's as if Jesus is telling Philip, I've been with you three years. You've seen me with your eyeballs the whole time, and yet you don't know me. Why then do you think that seeing the Father would help you know him? The kind of seeing that Philip had in mind does not in itself lead to true knowledge of God. So what kind of seeing does Jesus recommend? The right kind of seeing is centered entirely on Jesus Christ himself. He's the object of true sight. That's what the second half of verse 9 means. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So so how can you say, show us the Father? A person who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. The person who perceives who Jesus is perceives rightly God. And this spiritual perception doesn't happen in the eyeballs of your head. 
It happens in the eyes of your heart. It happens in the eyes of your heart. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is right before, uh, right after Galatians, right before Philippians. Ephesians 1, and there Paul talks explicitly about our heart eyes. Ephesians 1, let's start reading in verse 15. Verse 18 is going to be the key verse. Therefore, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then in verse 17, he goes on to give the content of his prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your heart, or hearts, is the, the correct translation there, being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Paul is praying that they would see with the eyes of their hearts. And Philip should have known this reality. He didn't need to wait for Paul to write Ephesians to know the truth that Paul is talking about there. Jesus had already taught him and the rest of the disciples a sound theology of spiritual sight. He had already taught them How to see God. Do you remember what Jesus told them back in Matthew 5, verse 8, in the Sermon on the Mount? It's one of the Beatitudes. You remember it well. He says, blessed are the ones with healthy eyeballs, for they will see God. No. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, For they will see God. Would you like to have a vision of God? Do you resonate with Philip? Can you identify with his desire there? Do you long to see God? Would it be enough if you could just catch a glimpse of God's glory? Well, it's not out of reach. Be pure in heart. If you want to see God, be pure in heart. A pure heart has healthy heart eyes. And healthy heart eyes are able to see God. If you're not seeing God, the problem is in your heart. If you're not hearing God, the problem is in your heart. If you lack intimacy with God, the problem is in your heart. So what's... What's the impurity in your heart that's keeping you from seeing God? Are you bitter about life in general? About your circumstances? Or perhaps bitter towards someone in particular? Some of you despise another person in this room. This comes from an impure heart. 
if you aren't interested in the things of the Lord. Your heart is impure and you won't be able to see God. If you love your sin more than Christ, your heart is impure and you won't see God. If you're holding on to rebellion, your heart is impure and you won't see God. If you're full of anxiety and worry, then your heart is not pure and your spiritual vision is blurred. If you're living a secret life of lust and sexual sin, your heart as well as your body is impure and you're destroying your ability to see God. If your heart is is poisoned with an exalted view of your importance and your opinions, then this poisonous pride will infect the eyes of your heart, blinding you to much truth about God, about the world, and about yourself. If seeing God with physical eyes, eyeballs, is the critical thing, then we're definitely deprived. Even more so than Philip, right? Not only can we not see the Father with our eyeballs, but we also can't see Jesus with the eyes in our head. Jesus isn't here bodily, physically. We can't observe him the way Philip could. On the other hand, though, if seeing with the eyes of our heart is true sight, if spiritual vision is the crucial thing, then we're not deprived at all. When you seek Jesus with your heart eyes, you'll always find him. You'll always be able to see him. Deuteronomy 4.29 You will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Proverbs 8.17 I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me find me. Jeremiah 29.13 You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You can't observe Jesus the way Philip could, but you can see Jesus and you can know him. In fact, you can see him and know him even better than Philip could here in John 14. Philip had observed Jesus for three years. Still, you can see and know Jesus better than Philip could at that point. Because believing in Jesus is seeing him. Trusting Christ with a pure heart is the path to greater vision. Greater vision of God and his glory. So don't try to get close to God without doing business in your heart. It won't work. It'll never work. The road is closed off to you. There's no path to intimacy with God apart from cultivating an undefiled heart. Every other path that you try to take to God will be fraught with frustration, despair, resentment, cynicism. Another way of saying this is the path to spiritual sight is true living faith. 
Believing in Jesus leads to seeing Jesus. Believing is seeing. As I said, the philosophy of the world is that seeing is believing, but Jesus says that believing is seeing. And I get this from the text. After Jesus asks Philip in verse 9, how can you say, show us the Father, he goes on in verse 10 to say, do you not believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. It's all about believing. It's all about faith. In spiritual matters, faith must come first. True seeing follows faith. Augustine famously said, believe so that you may understand. Faith is the gateway to all true knowledge of God. You can't understand who God is until you first put your faith in him. You can't see God and his reality accurately for what it is until your heart is pure Seeking God, trusting in Him. A pure heart believes in Jesus, rests on Jesus, looks to Jesus. Believe me, Jesus says. Trust in me, Jesus says. So seeing God starts and stops with believing on Jesus with a pure heart. Believing in the words of Jesus Believing in the works of Jesus. And so, I exhort you, believe in the words of Jesus. They have the power to sanctify you and make you wise unto salvation. Believe in the cross work of Jesus. His death and resurrection have the power to free you from the punishment and power of sin. The shed blood of Jesus forgives you of your sins. Your faith must be in Jesus and his blood if you want to see God in this life and in the life to come. Vague faith in a vague divine being is worthless. Religious faith is meaningless unless it rests squarely on the words and the works of Christ the Savior. In closing here, I want to bring back our gaze to the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of God the Father, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, His Son. Christology, potterology. Too often when we read Scripture or listen to sermons, We only want to know what we can go and do. But oftentimes, more often than we realize, the main application is just being still before God, knowing that He is God, and gazing at His glory. I think the main application of today's passage is seeing the eyes of our hearts seeing the close and mysterious union of God the Father and God the Son.
You can't see this glory at all without faith. You can't see it clearly without a pure heart. But with faith and an obedient heart, you can see the close and mysterious union of God the Father and God the Son. The text puts this truth before us four times in a very clear, unmistakable way. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Verse 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 10, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Verse 10 again, the Father who dwells in me does the works. J.C. Ryle writes this. Sayings like these are full of deep mystery. We have no eyes to see their meaning fully, no line to fathom it, no language to express it, no mind to take it in. We must be content to believe when we cannot explain and to admire and revere when we cannot interpret. Let it suffice us to know and hold that the Father is God and the Son is God. And yet they are one in essence, though two distinct persons. Ineffably one, and yet ineffably distinct. These are high things, and we cannot attain to a full comprehension of them. Let us, however, take comfort in the simple truth that Christ is very God of very God, equal with the Father in all things and one with him. He who loved us and shed his blood for us on the cross and bids us trust him for pardon is no mere man like ourselves. He is God over all, blessed forever, and able to save to the uttermost the chief of sinners. Though our sins be as scarlet, he can make them white as snow. He that cast his soul on Christ has an almighty friend. A friend who is one with the Father and very God. End quote. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for sending your Son. Oh Jesus, we thank you for coming and making known to us the Father. Help us to know you, to see you, to believe you with the eyes of our hearts. Open them, enlighten them so that we see clearly where our vision is blurred. Thank you for saving us from our sins so that we can see you. Thank you for rescuing us from utter blindness, darkness, of heart and mind, for shining your light into our hearts so that we can begin to see your glory. Please, this week, continue to remove the darkness so that we can see you. Give us pure hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen.